Before we start, let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we discuss this. Father God, um, as we come to this uh, topic about our gathering here, particularly on Sunday mornings, I ask, Lord, that you would guide us through your truth, that we would be able to understand and correctly divide the word of truth. We don't want to hear from me, we want to hear from you and from your word. We pray that you would take these truths, that you would engraft them into our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me first define what I mean by worship. Um, And what I mean by that is not just singing. Uh, Oftentimes it can sometimes be thought that way. You know, now that we're done with worship, let's come to the Word. That's not what I mean by it. I mean our worship of the Lord is everything in our lives, but specifically on a Sunday morning, what we do here. And hopefully later on you'll uh, see where the Bible instructs us on this particular thing. So it's not sort of thank you for the time of worship, now let's get to the Word. Worship is also what we are doing right now, listening to God's truth. A.W. Tozer, uh, who wrote a book, Knowledge of the Holy and the Attributes of God, he writes this, he says, Worship is the one shining gem that has been lost to the church today, a correct understanding of worship. And so I haven't mastered it. I don't know all there is to know. If I got up here and told you everything I got right, I wouldn't be up here much. And Dave would probably be up here more than me a little, but not all the time, because we come into God's truth. We are beggars who have found bread and want to share with other beggars where we can find bread. That's the view that we have. So a definition of corporate worship, a helpful one that, has been, that I've learned and gleaned from the books and a few things that I've inserted, but it says this, corporate worship magnifies the greatness of God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, skillfully combining God's word with music, prayer, ordinances, and giving of offerings, thereby motivating the gathered church to proclaim the gospel and to live for God's glory. And the points that we have this morning will come from this as we work our way through and look at God's truth. So the first one there, and we'll spend the bulk of our time here, magnifies the greatness of God. There is a Scottish preacher by the name of Sinclair Ferguson. Dave was actually at the conference where he was at Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And he says this about worship. He says, where God is at the center of things, worship inevitably follows. Where there is no spirit of worship, there God has been dethroned and displaced. And so magnifying the greatness of God is keeping Him at the center. And so why don't you turn with me to Psalm 92. We'll spend most of our time there. Psalm 92. We'll also go to Psalm 33 and a few other texts, but Psalm 92. And when you come to any passage of Scripture, you need to see why it was written and so on. Psalm 92, we don't know who wrote it. We don't know what the specific occasion of writing it was, but we know why it was written in the sense that you'll look at your Bibles and possibly some of them will have a title for the psalm and it will say, a psalm or a song for the Sabbath day. The only psalm that we have in our Bibles that talks about a psalm for the Sabbath day. So let's work our way through it. Psalm 92 verse 1. It is good to praise the Lord and to make music to your name, 
O Most High. So let's stop there for a moment. So it is good to praise the Lord. I don't want you to ever doubt and to think to yourself, it's not good to come and gather with brothers and sisters in Christ to praise the Lord. It tells us there, praise the Lord, God-centered, focused on Him. Again, in that psalm it says, to your name, O Most High. We come to do something different when we gather corporately on a Sunday morning together. You'll notice that most of the time we'll say something like this when we come to uh, corporate worship together. We'll take, like we did this morning, just a moment to um, gather your thoughts, to think about this is something different that we are doing together as brothers and sisters in Christ. To maybe not think about the lunch, the sports teams tonight, whatever it might be. To take that time to engage your heart and your mind to say, I'm coming to keep God at the center here and to worship Him. The Psalms are very helpful with this. Oftentimes I will either pray or read a Psalm, other texts of Scripture to help focus our thoughts on what we are coming to do here this morning. But as in everything, it can become ritualistic. We do this, we say, we we bow, we take a moment of silence, we read this, we pray this, we sing this, and so on and so on. I grew up in a church where we had responsive reading in the back of the old hymnals. You know, the pastor read the dark bits and the congregation read the light bits or whatever. It became just ritualistic for us. It's like peanuts, you know. And that's what we, we did. But it became like a ritual for us. In all things, we need to be careful about that. And we need to keep God at the center. The question is, is how many of us can't wait for Sundays? Was it like, well, it's cold. And boy, is it cold <laughs> over here. It's cold, all right? It's early. Well, it, it, re- it resonates with the 8.30 service. It doesn't resonate with the 11.30 service. Okay? It's far. I mean, some of you live in like, woo, way over there. Like, it's far, okay? One friend of mine said to me, you know, a church alive is worth the drive, Okay? So, you know, we want to be in a live church worshiping the Lord. Well, maybe some of you, it's even more like this. If I don't go to church, boy, I'm going to get it on Wednesday night at Bible study. So-and-so is going to ask, hey, noticed you weren't there on Sunday. You know, or you get that text. Are you okay? <laughs> Are you sick? And you know you can't lie. So you go, I better go to church so that so-and-so doesn't get me in the text or whatever. John Wesley, um, his brother Charles, wrote a lot of hymns and compiled a hymn book. And he put in the hymn book, Guidelines for Corporate Worship. And one of the first ones is this. It says, see that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness, time, distance, cold, insert, whatever, weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you will find a blessing. That's what he says. So we should make that special effort to come and meet together. We would do it if we had to meet somebody famous. We'd get up extra early, we'd get ready, we'd do the things and be anticipatory of that encounter. How much more so the living God in a special and different way when we are gathered together as his children. And our focus is to magnify God. That is where we even get the word worship from. Worthship. We proclaim his worth. Don't get me wrong, we don't give him any worth. We just declare the worth that he already has. That's what we do when we come and worship the Lord. 
So Psalm 91 says, O most, Psalm 92 verse 1, O most high, El Yon is what the word is in the Hebrew, the supreme governor over the, all the world. We've just sung about it. You are God alone. You are seated on your throne. Who is this magnificent God? Well, we magnify, firstly, a transcendent God. He is holy above all. Job 11 verse 7 says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And the rhetorical question begs the answer, No. He is a transcendent God. Romans 11 verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches both of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments? How unfathomable His ways. So in Psalm 92, we see this. The psalmist mentions this attribute of God. It says there in verse 8, just jump down to verse 8 there quickly. It says, Thou art Lord, and that's His covenant name, Yahweh. That's His personal name, used 4,000 times in the Old Testament. That's His I Am name, inexhaustible. Verse 8 carries on. On high forever, transcendent, magnified. And this name of God, this I am, Yahweh, is underpinning of all of His attributes. Last summer we looked at the attributes of God during adult Sunday school. He is eternal. He is self-sufficient. His infinitude is one of them. His transcendence. See there on high forever. It reminds us of His Infinitude. Kerry Hardy, a pastor doctor, says this about God's infinity that is wrapped up in his name, I am. Says this, He is not limited in anything. He does not improve or deteriorate. He is not limited by time. He transcends time. He fills time. He is in every part of time. He existed before time. He stepped into time. He created time. He exists in time and out of time, both at the same time. And He will be there when there is no more time. We need maybe some time to think about that. (laughs) What He is saying here, this great and grand and majestic God. Maybe some of you are like, oh, that wasn't too bad. You know, I can get that. You know, I go to Orchard. We study Melchizedek in Hebrews. You know, bring on the tough stuff. Okay? Just think about that for a while. And this is the God that is pleased to have us worship Him and magnify His name. Verse 2 of Psalm 92. To proclaim your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. This is interesting because not only God is God transcendent, but we have right here, the other part of God is He is imminent. He is with us. You see here, it's an intimate term here. Personal, interactive. Proclaim your love, your loving kindness, your steadfast love to your people. And then it says, and morning and night. It doesn't mean in the morning and then nothing during that and at night. It's a from morning till night, a life of worship, not just Sunday mornings. And although this particular psalm is addressing a Sabbath day, once a week service, um, our corporate gathering is not on a Sabbath, okay? We, we, We worship on the first day of the week, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just come here and plug in and then plug out. 
It is a culmination this time of what should be happening morning to night in our lives. And it spills over into our time together here as a gathered church. Psalm 34 verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. No. I will bless the Lord at all times and His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So we need to see God as transcendent and imminent. Transcend, if we just see Him as that, He will be aloof and far off. If we just see Him as imminent, we can possibly make Him our pal and our buddy. No, me and Jesus, we're right here. Okay? We need to see that He is a holy, transcendent God and an imminent, loving Father to us here. And this is why we have songs and we have prayers and we have readings and preach and declare things about God and also our response to those truths about who God is. Verse 3, it says, To the music, so we do all of this, to the music of a ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. Instruments were played to add to our magnification of who God is. The Hebrew scholars say that these, these instruments mentioned here have strings and a long neck. <laughs> Dave and I, all the guitarists in the house. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's to proclaim the glories of who God is. And we have it right here. So we're in his good books. Just kidding. Verse 4, it says, well, we use those to proclaim the Lord. For you make me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands. Our corporate worship of God is not to be devoid of emotions. Not at all. You know, stand up here. If, it, if we aren't responding to the truth and we're dead inside, we might as well sing Bob or Black Sheep up here. But we, we, we are responding to the truth. He has made us alive. We are using music to do so and prayers and readings to focus our attention on magnifying God. It says there, you make me glad. And then the response, I sing for joy. You see, both of them are there. Our joyous response is in the Lord. It's not in a groovy tune over here, musical talent or angelic voices up here or anything like that. It's not that. Our response is to the Lord and His truth. Unfortunately, in many settings today, whether it be in corporate worship services or other gatherings of people um, together, sometimes we can maybe get trapped in the, we worship the worship. You understand what I'm saying when I mean that? Oh, that was really cool. And we worship the worship rather than we worship the Lord. He is the great God. We do need to do well. We do need to be skillful. We do need to do our best and be excellent for the Lord. But it's for the Lord is the great God. And we worship Him. So we magnify the Lord, transcendence and imminence. We magnify the Lord with instruments. We do so with joy and with gladness. Keep your finger in Psalm 92, but flip back to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. It's in other places in the Psalms too, but let's just go to Psalm 33, verse 1 to 3. It says this, Sing for joy. So there is, that's rejoice. That's a shout of joy. It's a, a song of deliverance. 
Sing for joy to the Lord, you righteous. Those who are saved by grace. Those who are justified by Christ's death. And then it says there, it is fitting for the upright to praise Him. It fits a Christian to sing joyful praise to the Lord. It does not fit a non-Christian. It fits a Christian. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the old London preacher of 100 plus years ago, he wrote this and he has a wonderful way to describe things. He says, Fine music without devotion is but a splendid garment on a corpse. It is like a jewel of gold in a pig's snout. It is like beautiful flowers in a dunghill. It fits God's children to worship Him and worship Him with joy. Verse 2 there of Psalm 33. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to Him on the ten-stringed lyre. Once again, musical instruments are mentioned here. Are you familiar with the term uh, to pull out all the stops? Okay, I've got to check these terms because I have weird ones and Dave goes, what? Like I said, what did I say the other day? Oh, this prayer is like chock-a-block. And he's, what on earth? I said, it's packed. Oh, yeah, no, say that. Packed. <laughs> so, I have a weird. so pull out all the stops. We use it in many ways. You know, our team pulled out all the stops. Well, it actually comes from music, and it applies to what we once had here at Orchard long ago, was a pipe organ. And so all of these uh, shelves here, they used to hold the pipes, I believe. The pipes were fake. There's a bunch of speakers back here. But anyway, but the old pipe organs, they used to do that. They used to have a motor that generated wind. And when they wanted to pull out all the stops, they would pull out all of the pipe organ buttons. And it would let all of the wind go through the pipes for a grand sort of reverberant uh, sound. That's what it is here. We are worshiping the Lord with joy, with gladness to pull out all the stops. I'm not advocating a pipe organ. I'm just saying that that is where the analogy comes from. Then verse 3, sing to him a new song, play skillfully, and shout for joy. Now maybe some of the younger group are here going, aha, get rid of those hymns that says sing a new song to the Lord. You know, I knew it. It was biblical. You know, get rid of the hymns. Serves Dave right for letting me come up here. No, what I mean is, well, not what I mean, but what the Bible talks about. That word new has got nothing to do with chronology, time, chronos. It's got nothing. It's not like that is an old thing and now it's a new thing. It's got nothing to do with time. It's even got nothing to do with a new style. What it is talking about is we unsaved people, we sang the songs of the world. Now we sing a new song. And every time we come and we gather, we sing with new freshness the proclamations of God's truth applied to our hearts. Next week, we are going to sing a song that's probably the oldest song that we sing in the modern English church today. It is a song that was written in the 6th century. And you guys are, wow, some of you were there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Okay, focus, focus. I repent. <laughs> I am ashamed. So we, we sing this. Okay, it wasn't written in English because English wasn't around back then. We have the English words in 1912. 
but it was written in old Irish. Maybe that gives you a clue. The song that we're going to sing next week, and I trust we will sing it with a new, fresh understanding, is, and I'll say it with an Irish accent, Be Thou My Vision. You know that song? We sing that song. Next week we aren't going to go, oh, well, that's an old song. No, we can sing it because God should always be our vision. And a new sense of freshness of these truths that we are to proclaim. Now, I must say, I do agree that we do need to do things, you know, not old hat, but we do need to do things that we understand here today and are um, culturally and contemporarily in our era fitting to us. So God deserves our praise. Not a half-hearted sort of worship. Dr. Kerry Hardy again is helpful. He says, we don't come and sing Eorian worship. You know, it's not Gregorian worship with the monks. It's Eorian worship. You know what he's saying? Eeyore. Don't bother. Okay? Don't, yeah, that's Eeyore. Don't bother. And sometimes maybe you can check your heart here and say, when I come to magnify this great and awesome God, your lips kind of barely move, a few grunts and a puff of air out the corner. Are we Eorian worshippers or are we truly understanding? And we can all grow in this. The magnitude of and the infinitude of our holy, holy God. The next one. So there is to magnify the greatness of God in Jesus Christ. And the next few will be uh, quicker. A.W. Tozer helpfully reminds us and says that one of the reasons Christ came to earth was to turn rebels into worshippers. John Piper echoes this and said that missions exist where worship doesn't. And so we are to worship the Lord in Jesus Christ. He came to make us worshipers. For the Jews, they had their temple as the holy place to worship the Lord. And we've seen in Hebrews that Christ is greater than the sacrifices, greater than the temple, greater than the Sabbath day even. And for us to magnify the Lord, it's not limited to 2285 Latter Road in Greece, Rochester. It's not that. But our worship of God is limited to one person. It's in Jesus Christ. Peter, in 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Peter's been listening to today's sermons for the last while in Hebrews. Okay, it says, So Christ died so that he might bring us to God, eventually in heaven one day, but also now to be brought to God, to magnify him. Bob Coughlin in his book, That Worship Matters, says, I am a worshiper of God because Jesus died and rose to make me one, not because I earned the right to be one. And that's one of the reasons why here at Orchard we sing songs. We sing songs like, All I Have is Christ. We sing songs like, wonderful, merciful, savior. And you're going, he just mentioned two choruses. And we sing songs like, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. That's why we come. We come to magnify God, but because of Jesus Christ. We can never ever sing enough about the cross of Christ. Never. I've been in one place. You know, we sing a lot about Jesus. What? Amen. <laughs> sing more. Sing more about Christ. Third one, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the work of the Spirit in our lives doesn't begin and end at salvation, you know, saves you. But He helps us to worship our Father. 
Ephesians 2 verse 18. For through Him, remember, in Jesus Christ, okay? For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Sinclair Ferguson, helpful here, he says, Scripture is like a working museum of which the Holy Spirit is the curator, showing us around and explaining the wonders of our magnificent Lord. The Holy Spirit helps us to do that. We must see the passage that Jesus talked to uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, and uh, he said we need to be, and I'll quote it, um, John 4 verse 24, An hour is coming and now is, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit, yes, with the help of the Spirit, and worship Him with our emotions and our being, and truth, in spirit and truth. For such a people the Father seeks to be His worshippers. Sometimes when people uh, find out, or or they might say of of people up here, um, you know, we need to be following the Spirit more, you know, it just seems like we we, we sing, and then we pray, and then we do this, and we do that, and the next thing, and then we we carry on. But no, we need to follow the Spirit and all of that. I say, well, can the Holy Spirit lead on a Sunday morning, and does He? Yes, He does. Can the Holy Spirit lead Tuesdays when Dave and myself and Marilyn get together once a month to think through? Can he do it then, on that Tuesday, like three weeks ago? And people might say to us, well, what about if something happens in the life of your church, like 9-11? What happens if that happened and you had planned it before? You know, are you following the Spirit? Well, there's a church that used to plan their worship services six months in advance. Now, what are we going to be preaching and singing and all of that stuff? And they were asked this very question. What happened? And like 9-11, because they, uh, they were in Washington, D.C., so just down the road from the Pentagon. And he said, I'm so, the pastor said, I'm so thankful that you asked that. Let me bring out the order of service for that particular day on the Sunday after 9-11 that was planned three months before we did it. And it said there, when bad things happen, where is God? Do you think the Spirit can lead three months ago, last Tuesday, in spirit and in truth? The definition carries on. So magnifies the greatness of God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and then skillfully combining God's word. Let's just pause there for a moment. The truth. In the book of Nehemiah, the priest Ezra, they've rediscovered the law of God. And in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5, writes this, um, Ezra writes. Actually, Ezra wrote Nehemiah. That's another thing. But Ezra opened the book. And in the sight of all the people, he, he was standing above the, for he was standing above the people, so they built a platform so he could see everybody. It says this, And when he opened it, all the people stood. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Okay, so he knows what the Bible says. The Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting their hands, and they bowed low, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then verse 8 says, And they read from the book of the law of God, translating and giving the sense so that they understood. So what we do here at Orchard, we expose the text, expository preaching, giving the sense of what it means. What does God's word say? And how do we live that out? Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for basing their worship times on their traditions more than on what God's word says. And so during corporate worship, the truth of God's Word needs to underpin all that we do. And if we look at God's Word, and as far as I've tried to study through this, there are five elements of corporate worship. 
firstly, is the proclaiming of the word of God. 1 Timothy 4.13 says this, Until I come, Paul speaking to Timothy, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and teaching. So there is the proclaiming of God's word that is to be done. Secondly, in the book of Acts, verse 2 and 42 and numerous other places, there is prayer. And they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So prayer was part of their public worship services. Um, Number three, the ordinances of baptism and communion. We have that all over the book of Acts. In fact, it was just mentioned in Acts here, breaking of bread. We see that part of their their, their worship services was communion and was baptism. So we see the word. So we hear the word preached. We pray the word. We see the word in baptism and communion. Another part of our church services is the giving of gifts and offerings. We just did that a few minutes ago. 1 Corinthians 16.2 On the first day of the week, of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. So there's an element of when they gathered, they were thinking, I need to put something away for the work of the Lord, especially missions in this particular context. So we have that, the giving of offerings. And then singing, which we'll look at in a moment in more depth. I've kind of I've mentioned five that are specifically contained in the Bible. There's one that we kind of do here at Orchard that's not. Can anybody think of which one it might be? It happens every Sunday. The greeting, that's part of the fellowship, okay? So that's part of the fellowship and breaking bread. There's one other one. Anyone? Right at the beginning of service. Announcements. <laughs> Announcements. Well, we don't really see that. I'm sure that the disciples did do stuff like that. Like, hey, where are we meeting next Sunday? Because you know, we don't have a church building. We've got to go to somebody's house. They would have had some sort of announcement. But we don't do that. We give out practically and administratively some things happening in the life of the church. But even this morning it happened. And Dave said, and as we now come to a time of corporate worship, it is, it is different. Those elements that we have. Now, these elements that we've just talked about, proclamation of God's word, preached, read, the um, singing and giving and communion, baptism, prayer, those elements of worship can take different forms as we um, are in different churches. Do we use instruments or not? What sort of prayer? Is it a confession, adoration, thanksgiving, all of the above? Do we sing contemporary songs, old-style hymns? Do we sing with a projector or in the hymn books? Um, What time do we start on a Sunday? How long do we go for? All of those things are the forms that can vary, but the elements of our public worship is those five things. So the definition continues. It says they're skillfully combining God's Word with music. And I've just mentioned prayer and ordinances and the giving of offerings, so we won't mention that. But now we'll get to the music part. And sometimes people say, oh, now we get to the war. Oh, talking about music in church. You can pick up most church books, And they will have a chapter on music in the church in there. What do we do? So what does the scripture guide us to? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 and 19 is um, very instructive. And you'll see why. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. So there's the greatness of God there. So it says, be filled with the Spirit. 
there is an element of an emotionalism that we are emotional people to sing for joy. You look at the Psalms, Lord, why is my heart so downcast? I'm struggling through things. There is, we are emotional people. God has given us that. So we are to sing with emotion and be filled with the Spirit to have joy and gratitude. But those things should not lead us and guide us, my emotions. They should be a response to the truth that we are singing, reading, praying, hearing, preached. And so when we look at this saying, be filled with the Spirit, we say, okay, well, Ephesians says this. We have what has been known to be the twin epistle of Ephesians. If you look at it, Ephesians, and you look at Colossians, they are very similar in what they address. And there is a parallel passage in Colossians 3, verse 16, to this one in Ephesians 5, and it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So, be filled with the Spirit, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to the Lord. Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs to God. Be filled with the Spirit, have the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's the parallel there. It guides our hearts as we seek to, what does Ephesians say? Speak to one another. It's amazing because when we sing, yes, you are singing to God, but you're also singing to one another. You are encouraging one another. That's why sometimes here the music pulls back and we just hear our voices. It's the most important instrument we have is our vocal cords, more so than guitars and everything else. Our vocal cords. And we proclaim the greatness of our God to one another. It encourages my heart when I'm hearing you sing you know, with me to God. So we sing and make melody just on the side. Literally that word means to pluck a stringed instrument like a guitar. But make melody in your hearts, to the Lord. So we sing to and about God. We sing to one another. And in that particular passage in Ephesians, and we make melody in our heart. We also sing to our own hearts. And we say, what are we singing about and how are we going to respond to these truths that we have just sung about? And this is where many hymns are wonderful. They declare the grandeurs of who God is, and in a wonderful English language that we have. And choruses, though, in some ways are helpful to us in our response. I will worship. I will bow down. And so we do need them both. But unfortunately, in today's churches, where we don't maybe often sing the good, wonderful hymns, we look and we see that English, and, and many of us appreciate the old English. If you, some of you ladies over here, you sort of say, I wish my husband spoke to me like Jane Austen writes, you know, or whatever. And you get Darcy comes to Elizabeth and says, you bewitch me body and soul. And you say, why doesn't my husband do that? And then in our language today, we've lost it. And we come and we sort of, yeah, I think you kind of like pretty cool, hey? <laughs> and too much of our songs about God are kind of like, I think he's pretty cool, hey? And we miss the rich depths of, of what God, who God is about. And so I just mentioned that because when Dave and I look at a new song, top of the list, doctrine. Do we sing truth about who God is? Truly. And then it's 
Do we sort of, is it a uh, progression of thought? Is it a singable song? Is there poetic craftsmanship? Those types of things. Does the style of music match what we're singing about? You, you know, I'm going through trials. No, that doesn't match. Or like, God is so good. It doesn't match. We Do we sing what we believe and what it is being said here in God's truth? In a couple of months' time, we're going to look at the life of Martin Luther. He loved his music. Uh, the great reformer, we're going to look at the five solars building up to Reformation Day, which is uh, October 31st, where 500 years ago he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in Worms. So we're going to look at that and we're going to celebrate. Martin Luther loved music. He gave us um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God from Psalm 45 or 46. And, uh, but he had a great friend named John Calvin. Good friend. John Calvin didn't like musical instruments. Psalms only and with a cappella voices. That was it. Kind of hard to sing a cappella about musical instruments. But anyway, so that, that, that's two great men of God. They could worship the Lord. We look at Isaac Watts. We look at Charles Wesley's hymns that we sing today. We think, oh, that's great. We need to sing the hymns. You know, if it was good enough for Peter and Paul, it was good enough for us. You know, but you look at them in their particular time, they were considered terrible. They took bar tunes and put Christian words with them so people knew the tune and could sing the words and the truths about God's word. We need to sing the truths of who God is and to take our music and skillfully combine it with the word. One pastor says, we will only go as high in our worship of God as we go deep into the truths of who God is in his word. And in the world today, we all want an outcomes. And so there's an outcomes type of statement there. Thereby motivating the gathered church to proclaim the gospel. If Orchard is magnifying God like we should, like we've just looked at here, people will see it and be challenged by the truth of his word and the God that we worship. One of the reasons we are saved, Peter highlights in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he says this, But you are a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Okay, that's gospel language there. So that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Goes in hand with the second thing. In Jesus, the gospel. This is why at Orchard we sing songs about our wretchedness. Amazing grace, save the wretch. We sing songs about the grace of God, the death of Christ, redemption, ransom. We sing songs of our Savior. Let me hurry to the last point there. And to live for God's glory. Any of you been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, I haven't been to the Grand Canyon. Okay, heard it's a little ditch somewhere down there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, imagine you get to the Grand Canyon, and you stand out there, and you look at this wonderful, marvelous thing that God created, and He created it through the flood when He judged the world and carved out the Grand Canyon. But, and we stand there, and do we ever go like this? Oh, wow, boy, am I amazing. No, we don't. We don't. We are not here. We are here to see God's truth, to live for His glory, not our own glory. 
So living for God's glory is living a life of worship that then spills out into our times of corporate worship in these various elements that we have seen in God's word. Let me close with um, a preacher from Philadelphia. He passed away in the year 2000, James Montgomery Boyce. He says this, How do you approach Sunday? Do you think of it as the day in which you have to go to church? But the duties of which you will try to get over as soon as possible so you can spend time with family and get on to more enjoyable things? Or do you see it as a precious day given to you by God in which you can learn about Him and so praise Him? Is Sunday a trial or is it a treat? Is it a a delight or a deadly duty?